Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a galactic football league novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. I am working away on GFL Book 7's second draft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you've heard that all before many times, but I think I am 77% done. I was up to 85% done, but then I had reworked some stuff at the end and I changed the estimated word count for the whole thing from 125,000 words to 145,000 words. So you're going to get a big girthy tome, which is awesome. The reason for the expansion is Frederico Esteban Gisipi Gonzaga is a point of view character and his arc is very relevant to Quentin's efforts in GFL Book 7. And that storyline needs a little bit more attention. And if you think to yourself, who is that? That's Fred, you guys. That is Fred. He is a point of view character in The Detective, a GFL novella. So if you haven't read that one, plan on ingesting it before the goodness that is GFL 7 comes out, hopefully sometime in 2022 or 2023. I can't say for sure. I think I've got about two or three more weeks to finish GFL 7's second draft. Then the book is off to Big John Viscara to go through all the continuity, make sure it lines up with everything else. On another note, you might see some weirdness in the podcast feed in the next few weeks. Old episodes might be popping up, things might disappear, that sort of stuff. Just general weirdness. We're doing some maintenance and getting ready for a new thing. I can't tell you what that new thing is, but it should be pretty cool. Hey, we have new shirts in the store at scottsigler.com slash shop. One of them is a brand new shirt for my band, Super Weapon. It's awesome. It's orange and black. You guys might dig it. But more important than that, the first shirt that a real girl and I ever did, the classic property of Kraken's great t-shirt with black ink, it is back. We first launched this shirt in 2009 for the Rookie Tailgate Tour. It hasn't been available for years. But a real girl, Pondy and Iceberg, figured out how to bring it back. You can get yours at scottsigler.com slash shop. For all the cool shirts we have, and we have a lot of cool shirts, this one is, is my personal favorite. It is the best. Let me get you caught up in the story so far for the Stone Wolves, and then we're all going to go play Brownie Roulette. Previously on the Stone Wolves, Aya Omiata knows she's in big trouble. She missed a tracking device that almost got her and her new friends killed. And she's stuck on a ship with a man who has murdered thousands of people. And she knows almost nothing about Fanaka, the mystery woman who has the Oleran jumping all over the galaxy. Who is Fanaka? And what does she really want? Find out next on The Stone Wolves, episode number 12. 
Chapter 10. Kentucky Bourbon. The galley was quiet. Lonesome. Aya sipped her soup in silence. She looked up from the display, projected from a wristband, glanced at the empty chairs around the galley's scratched metal table. The Ionath Krakens were champs of the galaxy. Kalian and Beans were drunk beyond measure. Fanaka was probably in her bunk room, while Zan was downloading the rest of the information from the data cube. That should have been Aya's job. Zan didn't seem to trust her, not after Aya had missed the shucking tracker. How had she missed it? So amateur. Aya was supposed to be smart, a genius and all that, so why had she been so stupid? Everyone makes mistakes, right? Not here, apparently. Not on the Oleron. The ship had punched out at Lopu Waypoint, gathered up the Galaxy Bowl broadcast signal, then immediately used the second punch drive and traveled to the Neptune net colony deep in the planetary union. There, they'd waited long enough for both drives to recharge, then set out on another double punch. First, they would reach Rieger II, then on to the planet Quith in the Concordia. Quith wasn't the best choice. Logically, the Oleron should have gone from Rieger II to Shora in the Tribal Accord, but some hurrah were nearly an open revolution against their Kretorakian allied tribal council. Killian and Fanaka both thought it best to head to Quith instead. At Quith, a day for the drives to fully recharge, then yet another double punch, to Orbital Station 3, and, finally, to a punch point known only as Big Rock, deep in Bat Country. From there, impulse drives would carry the Oleron to the borehole. When the ship had punched out at Lopu, Aya had, as ordered by Skipper, locked all incoming signals save for the game's broadcast. Most signals, anyway. She'd gathered up some info from the dark waves. She was aboard a ship with the killer, after all, and she needed to know more. Another order she'd broken altogether. She had sent her radcast. Her encrypted, tight-beam transmission would bounce off a dozen relays before the encryption opened and her message hit several systems at once. Maybe Skipper wouldn't find out. If he did, well, Aya would have to deal with fallout. He certainly wasn't going to find out anytime soon. That was a gleaming certainty. The man had cheered so hard for the Krakens. Veins bulging in his head when he screamed, sometimes spit flying from his mouth. Gross, but fun. It was thrilling to see someone so normally reserved cut loose, to let pure excitement and emotion overwhelm him. He'd screamed about how tough Quentin Barnes was. After almost every offensive play by Inath, Skipper would look at everyone in turn, asking, Did you see that? At every penalty, or non-penalty, Skipper had yelled, The fix is in! Or about how the league wants Pine to get a third title! And when Quentin Barnes, who'd played only one down at quarterback, which was weird, but the Rekka had done a pretty good job, came in on defense as a shucking linebacker of all things and made the game-ending sack on Don Pine, Skipper had lost it. Beans, on the other hand, had spent most of the game complaining about how unfair it was that his milkiness was cheated out of a Galaxy Bowl experience. On that final play, though, when John Tweedy sealed the game by returning a Don Pine fumble for a touchdown, Beans had gone nuclear. The Sklerno had fallen to the floor, 
shaking so bad that I had wondered if he needed medical attention. He was fine, of course, just losing control thanks to his favorite team winning it all. After the game, Skipper continued to drink and rant and rave. Eventually, he'd passed out in his tattered recliner. He'd wake up soon enough. Aya already felt guilty. She'd promised to lay off the radcast. She wasn't used to keeping promises, which seemed to be something the crew of the Oleron actually did. The medical industry was full of festering bits of chum that were too dirty to even be called vomit, sure, but the real reason for breaking that promise and sending the radcast was that Aya needed to know more about the Ponsky sisters. Why was that data cube so important to them? Aya couldn't come out and ask her freaks to find out why the Ponsky sisters wanted info on the borehole. Any mention of the sisters would get back to the sisters. They would listen very closely to Rara's radcast. That was why Aya had made sure there was no direct connection between her request and the attacks on the Oleron. A few more hours to Rieger too, then they'd dump Fanaka's data cube, send it off somewhere, and let the Ponsky sisters chase it. By the time the sisters got that signal, the Oleron would be not one, not two, but likely three punches away from that place. Aya still wasn't used to the presence of a second punch drive. The one-of-a-kind system worked, but it was a terrifyingly risky way to travel. One wrong twist of an inner cooler knob, or a fraction of a decimal miscalculation on a nav dial, and everyone's atoms would be smeared across punch space. There were reasons no other ship had multiple punch drives. If Beans ever wanted to sell his technology, he would be richer than entire planets. I had no idea why he didn't. In a day and a half, the Oleron and Aya along with it would be in imperial space. Bat country. They would be deep within the quiescence. Now that would be a comms challenge. The bats had hidden from the rest of the galaxy for decades, using a still unknown technology that blocked all outgoing signals inevitably generated by a technological society. Originally, the quiescence encapsulated only Craterac, but since the takeover, the bats had expanded it, using the five emperor stations to create a massive communications dead zone. Aya had learned about it while in the Fafner project. Even the advanced tech of the League of Planets couldn't crack the quiescence. She'd heard rumors that the few sentients brave or stupid enough to go into bad country compared the quiescence to fog. Up close, an object looked normal. The farther away you got, the less clear the object became, and at a certain distance, you couldn't even see the object. It was like that, but with all signal wavelengths. That was all she knew about it. That she would get to experience that phenomenon. Maybe try to crack it? It was exciting. So much excitement being on this ship. She had another spoonful of soup. Spicy hot, to the point of tears, just the way she liked it. While no one in the crew had a lot of money, yet, that one-fifth share of each job that funded the Oleron's maintenance, fuel, and continuing operations helped pay for some damn good eats. The food wasn't as fine as what she'd enjoyed while at the Fafner Project. The League gave their little geniuses the best of everything. But no matter how fancy that food had been, it had always tasted to her like prison gruel. 
In the project, Aya had become used to eating alone. Eating alone was better than talking to her masters, her instructors, or her professors, and way better than talking to her fellow geniuses. And, of course, everyone wanted to get close to her or mess with her just because of the color of her skin. What was it about her amethyst shade that pushed so many buttons? Sometimes, most times, she wished she didn't look like she did. She just wanted to be normal. Except no one in the Fafner Project had been normal. Everyone had been so messed up. Like Skipper, Beans, and No Shozan weren't messed up? When the Oleron had dropped out of the sky six weeks ago and whisked her away from a death squad, and Skipper had asked her to be part of the crew, a sliver of her mind, the tiny part that hadn't yet been crushed by a life on the run plagued by the uncertainty, cynicism, racism, and unwanted gazes, felt like she'd come home. She'd let down her guard a bit. Being here felt nice. Aya didn't really know how to handle nice. The Oleron crew almost always ate meals in the rumpus room, and almost always together. Like everything else the crew did, chow time was absurd. Skipper hunched over his plate like a gargoyle, single-mindedly shoveling up his food as if he'd never left boot camp. Beans, plucking up morsels with his keta sticks, popping them into his tiny mouth and announcing the flavor profile of whatever he tasted. Aya, chewing, swallowing, and mostly listening. While Zan didn't eat with them, she took her meals at the same time, sending her schmeck to the galley so she could talk, have a presence with the rest of the crew. Her schmeck's speaker film transmitted the ghastly sounds of her eating. Crunching, tearing, chewing. Gross. Sometimes, even the oh-so-audible sound of snapping bones. None of that camaraderie tonight, though. The Galaxy Bowl celebration had knocked half the crew on their behinds. Aya smiled. Oh, those two were going to be so hungover. Maybe she'd accidentally blare some trench warfare across the ship's comms, just to see them wince. She sniffed, used her napkin to wipe her nose. Man, the soup's upsuka pepper set her sinuses afire. Two weeks into her stint on the Oleron, she'd learned that Skipper also loved hot food. She challenged him to an upsuka pepper eating contest. He'd tapped out at four, she'd finished seven. She took a big gulp of water from her mug, eyed the data displayed in the holo glowing above her wrist cuff. What she read disturbed her. There was no end to the information available on the dark waves. Much of it was true. Most of it was not. The dark waves were the home of imagined plots, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and all forms of sentience trying to position themselves as experts, operatives, saviors, you name it. So, yes, the dark waves had information about the killer. Until Fanaka told Skipper's story, Aya wouldn't have believed any of it. She believed now. The body count for actions the killer was supposedly responsible for? 10,648. Some 7,000 of them were civilians. Aya knew better than to believe official imperial statistics, especially where the guild was concerned. Still, 
there were enough confirmed incidents that there could be no question about one key fact. The skipper had been a life-taker on a grand scale. Pictures and holos from security cam footage always showed the same thing. A man with heavy dreadlocks, subdermal tats that blazed red, blurring any details of his face, and a thick cloak that let him blend into his surroundings. And that crazy pistol with the hatchet blade. Aya had looked that up, too. An orphaner, a brutal weapon issued to purest nation null knives. Not some ceremonial sword, mind you. The five-shot revolver was death made real. A hex steel blade beneath a barrel that kicked out 700 caliber rounds, generating a recoil so strong that the weapon was issued with an inertia dampening glove so the shooter could fire one-handed. What orphaner bullets hit, they destroyed. It was meant to be a weapon of pure terror. The purest nation wanted enemies to know that null knives were out there, ghostly specters that would find you and ventilate you. In the footage she'd found, the killer wore no glove. The footage, the legend, the statistics, both official and unofficial, none of it matched up to the man she knew. Sure, she'd only known Skipper for all of six weeks, but he seemed so genuine. With Skipper, you always knew where you stood. If you needed to talk, he listened. He didn't ask questions that you didn't want to answer. He didn't play head games. During the talk with Fanaka before the Galaxy Bowl game, Skipper had called himself a monster. That word didn't do justice to what the killer was. I reckoned there wasn't a word terrible enough for what he'd done in the name of the Zoroastrian Guild. And yet, there was another side to consider. Skipper had supposedly been out of the Guild for decades. He'd claimed he kept himself doped up to keep the terrifying, red-faced beast at bay. He'd changed, he said. But can anyone outrun something that is in their very bones? Can anyone truly change. She hoped so, for her own sake. Skipper had a body count in his past. So did Aya Omiata. She didn't need the dark waves to know the number. Forty-seven. That was how many sentient beings had died during ops she'd planned. Her Fafner project trainers had told her that, eventually, those killings wouldn't bother her. Once it settled in, that the targets were enemies of the League of Planets, that those people would have done things that ended in the death of many League citizens. Her trainers had been wrong. In the Fafnir Project, she'd caused death. As the Empress of the Freaks, she'd caused death. Who was she to judge Skipper? And even if she did want to leave, even if she considered herself too good to hang with the killer, even if she feared for her own life should he come off his meds or whatever, where could she go? The League wanted her gone. She was marked for death. So was Beans. So was Anne. So was Skipper. Aya was a target and would be for the rest of her life. How ironic that the safest place in the galaxy for her seemed to be alongside one of the galaxy's greatest mass murderers. It hurt one's head to think about it. 
as illogical as it was, as stupid as it was, Aya listened to her heart. She trusted Skipper. Fanaka Tolvaj, on the other hand, as the Krizatu strategist and leader, Fanaka had as much blood on her hands as Skipper did. She was the mastermind behind the terrorist cell's attacks. According to Aya's research, on one mission, the Krizatu destroyed an entire Kretorakian orbital shipyard. On another, they'd somehow boarded a Kretorakian cruiser in orbit around the planet Grichlik and destroyed both the cruiser's impulse thrusters and the anti-grav array. The cruiser had plummeted into the atmosphere, burning like a meteor before it smashed into the surface. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Mind if I join you? Aya managed not to jump. Fanaka stood in the galley's hatch, her thin-legged watchbot by her feet. Geez, did the woman ever take off that armor? And the expression now on her face. What was it, exactly? Kinder than before? More relaxed? Hopeful? Aya nodded to a chair. If you want some of the subsaka, there's a container in the fridge. Fanaka sat down, shook her head. I don't mind food that's got some bite, she said. But that stuff's just plain mean. You seem to like it enough. The watchbot curled up beneath Fanaka's chair. I'm a Satirly Six native, Aya said. If the food doesn't make you cry, it ain't food at all. Fanaka chuckled. Well, I know all about that. I used to date a guy from Satirly. Fantastic lay. His pheromones drove me wild. And his accent, too. He was from the northern continent. I could listen to him roll his R's all day. Oh, 
the conversation had immediately turned to sex, how surprising. You know what they say about people from Satirly 6. You're not the first sentient to get weak in the knees for the pheromones. Or the accent. So which one of your parents went weak in the knees? Old people. Did they even know what the word subtle meant? You're not one for discretion, Aya said. Never found much use for it. Aya considered this. She didn't find much use for it either. But she also wasn't one to share her family tree with strangers. A beyond inappropriate comment, but at least Fanaka wasn't leaning in like all the gin joint leeches did. Those creeps practically drooled for a half scrap of information about Aya, she of the exotic skin and the dark tattoos. No, Fanaka's expression was neutral, maybe even a bit pleasant. Definitely not the kind of intense, curious leer Aya got from so many strangers. There was something about Fanaka, something inescapable. She seemed utterly fearless. Aya didn't know what that was like. She'd lived most of her life in fear. Her alter ego, Rara Avis, was all the things Fanaka seemed to be. Confident, commanding, and control. But Rara Avis was a made-up creation. A sentient who hid behind a microphone and endless light years of empty space. On the dark waves, Aya could be anything she wanted to be. In real life, Aya wasn't even close to being like Rara Avis. Or like Fanaka Tolvaj. Why not talk to the woman? What could it hurt? Mom was this satirly native. Dad was an immigrant from Tower. Aya made a gesture to her amethyst skin. Sometimes, just sometimes, when a blue-skinned man really loves a white-skinned woman, they can make a mutant. Fanaka laughed, shook her head. A mutant? Aya, you're beautiful. So saith everyone who wants to get me in the sack. Fanaka leaned away. She frowned. I'm not trying to seduce you, Aya. You're young enough to be my child. Aya huffed. Like that ever stops anyone? It most certainly stops me. Words. Everyone uses them. Words mean nothing. Do you even have children? Fanaka nodded. I do. Two. I'd do anything to protect them. That's what any good parent would do. Words meant nothing? Maybe. But those particular words felt like a slap in the face. Any good parent. Aya's parents hadn't protected her. They'd sold her. The hurt bubbled up, hurt and anger. Aya took it out on the only sentient around. Do your children know their mother is a murdering terrorist? Fanaka blinked, but she nodded. They do. Do your parents know you've got access to some of the galaxy's biggest government, military, and criminal secrets? Do they know you're the queen? Aya dropped her spoon. It made the soup splash onto the table. What could it hurt to talk? Aya wondered why she was so stupid, wondered when she would ever learn. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you don't, but Rara Avis does. Aya froze. 
She'd suspected Fanaka might know about the Fafner project, but not about Rara Avis. Say something, stupid girl. Say something. I don't know who that is. Was that her best effort? So pathetic. Aya felt small. She felt worthless. Rara was brave and smart and huge and apex. Aya was none of those things. Aya was a bumbling idiot. You sing your pretty little song on the dark waves, Fanaka said, her voice low and smooth. You work your magic and have your listeners, oh, so many of them, in oh-so-high places, dig up whatever you like. They love you, Aya. All hail Rara Avis, queen of the dark waves. All hail Rara Avis, empress of the freaks. So stupid. So stupid. I have fought an urge to simply run, to go back to her quarters and hide. But she wasn't a child anymore. She couldn't just run away. Fanaka was a threat. Aya had to talk her way out of this. That's not me, Aya said. I'm telling you, I'm not. Fanaka waved a hand, cutting Aya off. Of course, you're not her, Fanaka said. My mistake. I'm sure. But that Rara, she's really something. Did you know that in some military circles, she's considered one of the top intelligence gatherers in the galaxy? That her network of spies and informants rivals that of the Planetary Union? There's more than a few sentients that would like to see Rara Avis dead, that's for sure. I had thought of denying it some more. Like, what else was she supposed to do? But there was no point. Fanaka knew. Aya took a deep breath, tried to calm herself, just like they taught her to do back in the Fafner project. How did you find out? Fanaka offered a warm smile. Sweet child, I'm one of yours. I'm a fan, a freak. I listen damn near every time you cut into the dark waves. I even fed you some information a few years back. Remember the tip you got about the substandard plexcrete used on that failed dam in Wopal? Aya couldn't believe it. Of course she remembered. The key Tetmu Dam on Wopal had collapsed, flooding the Tetmu Valley, drowning a half million sentients. Aya, no, Rara Avis, not Aya, not stupid cowardly Aya, had used her network on the dark waves to procure a trail of invoices, shadow companies, and fake accounts. And, in the process, created the intel equivalent of a neon arrow pointing to one Isabel Mehetabel. Isabel was a subcontractor who had falsified quality reports on the materials used in the dam. Rara Avis outed Isabel. Isabel was arrested days later, but died in custody when an angry mob of Key stormed the police station and tore her to pieces. That, yeah, I remember that tip. The freak's name was Kilroy Infinite. That was you? Fanaka grinned, the genuine grin of an admirer being recognized by her idol. Seeing that expression on a woman more than twice Aya's age, it felt so odd. That's me, Fanaka said. Mehetabel also did some work for the guild. After your cast about the dam, I looked into it. Aya nodded, then shook her head, 
unsure of which gesture was appropriate. Fanaka was a freak. She'd called in that tip, what, two years ago? But the dam was a civilian project, Aya said. It had nothing to do with the bats or the empire. Why would you give up that info on Isabel? Because wrong is wrong. I don't limit justice to fighting the bats. Was this woman for real? Aya had thought her a terrorist, a killer, yet here she was, a mother, and, in her own weird way maybe, a citizen of the galaxy concerned about other citizens of the galaxy. Who are you? Vanaka's smile shifted from admiration into something else. Something predatory. I'm the bitch who knows everything, she said. You know, you look different than what I always imagined, but you sound practically the same, if one knows what to listen for. That's what actually tipped me. You should upgrade that voice algorithm before your next radcast. And please work on that accent. If you're not careful, someone might recognize you. Someone like you? Fanaka shrugged. Don't worry about me. You and I are friends. They sat in amiable silence for a moment. Aya ate a few spoonfuls of soup. Fanaka reached inside her long jacket. Seriously, did the woman ever take that thing off? And extracted a small canteen and a telescoping metal cup. She set the cup on the galley table. Next, she pulled out a small foil packet, a military protein ration. Uh, we've got food here, Aya said. Not just soup, warm food. You ever heard of warm food? I like it my way. Simpler. Fanaka opened the packet and took a bite from the pale gray bar inside. She poured canteen water into the cup. Her hand slid the canteen back inside her jacket, came out with a small tin. Inside the tin, several small, white pellets. She dropped two pellets into the cup. The water fizzed, changed from clear to an amber-brown. A sentient has to have her creature comforts. Fanaka offered the open tin to Aya. Want some? What is it? The closest thing you'll get to the best damn bourbon in the galaxy, unless you want to travel to Earth and visit the great Commonwealth of Kentucky to get the real thing. I don't even know you, Aya said. Those might be knockout pills or something. Fanaka rolled her eyes. Do I look like the kind of person who needs pills to knock someone out? She most certainly did not. The woman could probably take Aya out before Aya even saw a punch coming. What the hell? Why not? Aya nodded. Fanaka dropped two tablets into Aya's mug. Aya waited for them to dissolve completely. She took a sip and gasped. <laughs> oh my God! This tastes like what rocket fuel must taste like. You enjoy this? It grows on you, Fanaka said. Cheers. She clinked her cup against Aya's mug. Another moment of pleasant silence passed. I saw the way Skipper was looking at you, Aya said. In the rumpus room. You guys had a thing once, didn't you? Not a question. Aya had a feeling about it. A strong feeling. 
Fanaka sipped her fake bourbon. Yeah, we did. A great thing. You've had lovers? Not one-night stands, I mean, but lovers. Aya nodded. She'd had two, both in the Fafner Project. As if she could have had one before it when she was ten or after when she'd been on the run almost nonstop. Killian and I had that, Fanaka said. That and more. He and I fought together. It was more than just sex or love. It was... It was like a ballroom dance. In combat, I always knew where he was. I could feel him without seeing him. It was almost like an electrical current, a sixth sense. It made us great soldiers. And more. Fanaka drained her bourbon, winced slightly. The woman didn't want to say anything further, but Aya couldn't let it go. So, what happened? War happened. Sooner or later, war changes you. War changes everything. Fanaka forced a smile. What about you, kiddo? What brought you to the Oleron to fly with my old pal? Ha! There wasn't enough bourbon in the world to get Aya to tell that story to a stranger, even one who knew about Rara Avis. Let's just say Skipper got me out of a tight spot. Then he offered me a permanent job. The money isn't bad, she gave Fanaka a very serious scowl. When we get paid, that is. Fanaka held up both hands. Guilty. I'll get your money. I promise. A lot of people had promised a lot of things to Aya. Few came through. Not that it mattered. If the rescue mission failed, she and the crew would be dead. Or in prison, which meant Aya would be dead soon enough after that when the Natvig found out where she was. And they would find out. Aya realized she knew this mission could end in her death, and she was okay with that. Because she'd be with Skipper, with Beans. Was this what family felt like? I'm happy here, she said surprised by the word. The Oleron is always on the move, so it's a good base for my radcasts. If my work on the dark waves gets intel that's relevant to what the Oleron is doing, I share it with the crew. The rest gets bartered. Bartered? You don't sell it? All information has a price, but that doesn't mean information can't be free. I swap it. Wheel and deal. Money complicates things. Some of the data I get protects me, keeps certain parties from, let's say, retaliating. Fanaka nodded. Blackmail material. I prefer the word insurance, but I swap intel to protect other sentients too, or bring down evil shuckers who have it coming, or give a mother on some hateful backwater mudball a lucky break, an untraceable code to access some stolen credits, for instance. Fanaka seemed to study her. You'd probably be rich if you sold all that info. Aya thought of Beans again. He had a fortune available to him if he wanted it, if he wanted to risk his somewhat safe little traveling existence. Beans chose otherwise. Aya had been rich not once, but twice, both times because of selling key information she'd uncovered. 
With Nadvig always on her heels, she'd had no opportunity to spend those fortunes. Both times, League operatives had found where she'd electronically hidden her money and confiscated it. I'd be richer, yeah, Aya said, gleamingly so, and made of chitin. But I guess I don't really care about money. Well, I care about money, as in the money that you owe us, but I don't care about wealth. I love it here. I owe Skipper my life. Fanaka glanced down. She looked sad. I know the feeling, she said. He saved my life, too, several times. Suddenly, I heard a scrambling click-click sound and a chirp of alarm from the watchbot. Fanaka stood, drew her revolver, the motion as fast as a blender going from off to high with the push of a button. Don't shoot! I'm just a harmless little sclore now! Fanaka growled with annoyance. You really should stop sneaking up on me like that. Beans hopped up onto a nearby chair. His mouth raspers waved at them. Two of his green eyes sized up Fanaka. The other two looked at Aya. You were listening to us, Fanaka said. For how long? Long enough to know that you're the bench who knows everything. Aya snorted a laugh. Sorry, sorry, Bean said. I've been listening to you two for about, oh, about five minutes. Yep. Fanaka scowled at Beans. How in the hell did you even get in here? I've been watching the door since I sat down. Beans pointed at a beach ball-sized hole at the base of a nearby bulkhead. My tunnels, he said. They're all connected and go to practically everywhere in the ship. I can go anywhere, lickety-split, if there's a problem or something to fix it. Yep, yep. Aya didn't like the holes. Twice, she had tried to cover up the one in her quarters. Both times, the first time the next day, the second time the same day, the holes had, somehow, opened up again. Beans claimed ignorance. Aya knew a losing battle when she saw one and had given up. Fanaka stared at the strip of speaker film that ran along the walls just below the ceiling. Let me guess, she said. Our hidden navigator has been listening in on the whole conversation as well? Correct. Zan said, speaking through the galley speaker film. But only for the last five minutes and 17 seconds. I have duties that demand my attention. Fanaka shook her head. Duties that include eavesdropping? Didn't Killian order you not to do that? You are in a common area, Zan said. It is not eavesdropping. I am the XO. I can check in on my crew anytime I like. The way she emphasized the word my, I didn't know if that made her feel like she belonged or if Zan was slowly gathering info on her to get rid of her. Get used to it, Fanaka, Aya said. I learned early on there's not much privacy aboard the Oleron. Privacy means secrets, Zan said. The crew does not keep secrets from one another. Said the crew member who hid away in hold two, who was so secretive Aya didn't even know what species she was. The crew member who knew Skipper's secrets and didn't share them. Zan was full of crap. Chit-chat time is over, Zan said. 
we will punch out and rig or two in one hour. Aya, Beans, get to your stations. Fanaka, please try to stay out of the way. Chit chat time is over. We will punch out and rig or two in one hour. Aya, Beans, get to your stations. Fanaka, please try to stay out of the way. In the darkness, the tiny blob processed what it had heard. Its algorithms evaluating what it could delete and what it needed to store. It could only store so much. At the next punch out, it would transmit. Then that data, too, could be deleted. It sought out dark spaces, spaces where it could hear. The blob listened, collecting audio and any other signal it could passively detect. When compressed into a ball, the blob was no bigger than an adult human's thumbnail. But it rarely compressed into a ball. The blob moved by extending pseudopodia and dragging its soft body along. It had no skeleton, almost no hard parts at all. A tiny beacon, separated into three pieces, existed inside the blob. If and when it needed to send a signal, it would use internal muscles to assemble the beacon, send what it was programmed to send, then break the beacon back down into the three component parts. This softness, this almost complete lack of hard parts, made the blob nearly undetectable. If the blob moved along a metal surface, and most of the routing conduits in the Oleron were metal, the small bits of metal and wires inside its body faded into the background noise of most bot detectors. It had no power plant, no batteries. The blob could, literally, survive on breadcrumbs and dust, ingesting any biological material it found and breaking that material down for energy. The blob could not live for very long in the dry, dark conduit. Five hours, perhaps six, and then it needed its home, a place that was moist, safe, and dark. For now, though, the blob did what it had been engineered to do. It listened. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.